Let me just say that I'm delighted to be here this afternoon to introduce um, Dr. Andrew Murphy. Andy is professor of political science at Rutgers University, and he's the Richard L. Morrill Chair in Ethics and Democratic Values at the Jepson School, uh, visiting uh, at the Jepson School this year. This chair was established through the generosity of our Chancellor, Rich Morrill, who many of you I'm sure know, uh, who has a long-standing commitment to teaching foreign about ethical leadership. Two years ago, I was asked to lead a committee uh, with representation from all schools at the University of Richmond in a search for the first, and it turns out, only visiting moral chair at the Jepson School. The committee members and I soon agreed that Andrew was, uh, by far and away, the strongest possible candidate, the ideal candidate for this visiting position. Uh, and we were happily able to entice him to visit the, the, at the University of Richmond this fall. Andy has been busy this fall leading a s seminar, and I uh, participated as I was able to, including yesterday, and have really enjoyed it, uh, with interested faculty from across the university um, on themes relating to what he'll talk about today, um, broadly relating to religion and political thought. The visiting chair has been such a success that in the future, it will be permanently endowed in the Jepson School. I'd just like to say that I'm very grateful to Rich Morrill for making this possible. He would have been here today, but has been called away on a personal um, uh, appointment that he needed to attend. Uh, but he too has enjoyed attending the seminar that Andy's been leading. Dr. Murphy's research explores the interconnections between religion and American politics and political thought. He has served as co-president of the Association for Political Theory and as book review editor of Politics and Religion. He holds degrees from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, as well as the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Professor Mercy, Murphy sorry, has taught at Valparaiso University, Villanova, and the University of Chicago. As I noted, his research focuses on the relation between religion and political thought, very interestingly in both historical and contemporary contexts. He's written extensively on the theory and practice of religious liberty in England and in America from his first book, Conscience and Community, Revisiting Toleration and Religious Dissent in Early Modern England and America, to his more recent, in fact, hot off the press, <laughs> biography of Penn, William Penn, A Life. Please join me in welcoming Andrew Murphy to the Jepson School. Thank you, uh, Dean Peart. Thank you to the Marshall Center. Thank you for all of you um, for coming today. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Um, my kids tell me it, there's never any problem with my voice being heard. Um, uh, those of you who are uh, university affiliated, I realize that it is uh, late in the semester and things are very busy. Those of you who are not university affiliated, I realize it is Friday afternoon, so I will try not to waste your time. Um, but <clears throat> I, um, I want to talk today about someone whom I, with whom I've spent a, more or less the past decade of my life, actually a bit more, um, and I'll make a, a, a confession. Um, when I first was trying to come up with a title for this talk, I thought that using the word leadership somewhere would be important. I felt like it was at least good manners. Um, if I was being hosted by the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, um, it seemed to me that um, uh, leadership ought to be involved. As it turns out, um, as I'll sort of talk about in a few minutes, um, there's a particular aspect of William Penn as a leader that I had not actually thought carefully about, and I want to sort of share that with you a little bit today. Um, but first things first. I've described William Penn, um, and there's the famous, uh, an up-close drone image of uh, the Penn statue on, on the top of City Hall in Philadelphia. These two buildings here were not there when I was growing up in the, suburb, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Used to be, some of you may know this, it was a gentleman, there was a gentleman's agreement not to build any building in Center City, Philadelphia, higher than the top of Penn's hat. Um, that went by the wayside. <clears throat> But I describe Penn as someone whom many people know a little bit about, but very few people know well. 
Um, and I think this, this sort of the, the, the statue, he has a famous name, of course, the, the colony that later the state is named after him. There is this iconic statue. But as I got further into my study of Penn, I would often um, do a sort of mischievous quiz to people and ask, well, what do you know about him? Um, and so I would ask the question, um, if Penn became the governor of Pennsylvania at age 37, and he lived till age 74, that means he had another 37 years of being um, the proprietor and governor, um, how many years would you guess that he spent in Pennsylvania? And I would ask people who were highly educated, journalists, lawyer friends, um, anyone want to take a guess? This, I'm setting you up for a trick question, right? <clears throat> four, grand total of four years over the course of 37. So um, this is sort of uh, indicative to me of the fact that Penn is someone whom everyone knows um, a little bit about, um, but very few people know um, much. And fortunately for all of you here, the book is available. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to make you buy the book to hear the talk, I promise. So for example, we've got the William Penn High School Colonials. We've got the William Penn Realty Group. We've got William Penn University, which is in Iowa for some reason. If you go to the Hampton Inn in downtown Philadelphia, you'll see on the same direction as the pool and spa and fitness center, the William Penn Room. Um, uh, the William Penn Inn, where I used to go once a year and eat a lovely brunch with my family as a boy. And then this one, I think you can't quite see it. It says, Happy Halloween from William Penn Bank. Um, the reason why I love this one is that William Penn went bankrupt. And he spent eight months in debtor's prison. So the notion that you would name a bank after William Penn always sort of tickled my fancy. And, and no one else knew why I would chuckle when we would drive by William, bank, William Penn Bank, um, precisely because he's a figure about whom people know a little but not a lot. Now, as I started thinking about William Penn as a leader, um, you know, I had, I had looked at Penn as a theorist of religious liberty, <clears throat> as a political agitator, a political activist for religious liberty, um, as a historical figure in the history of England and America, but I hadn't really thought specifically about Penn as a leader. Um, and, and, and of course, he was a leader. Um, and it dawned on me that looking through the lens of leadership um, on a person like Penn really told an extraordinary, provided a window into his extraordinary life. On the one hand, <clears throat> he was groomed by his father, uh, a war hero, member of parliament, advisor to the king, extremely well-connected individual. He was groomed by his father, Admiral Sir William Penn, um, to take his place in the English elite. Um, and his father sent him to the finest university in the land, um, and so on. There was always, though, at the core of his, of his sort of understanding of himself from a very young age, a deep, intense religious piety which culminated, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. I'm giving you sort of just a, a quick overview, then we'll get into some more details. There was always this intense religious piety, which culminated in his um, uh, conversion to Quakerism at age 22, and which really dealt um, a mortal, oh, I just saw there's a Phillies hat in the room. Thank you for wearing the Philadelphia hat. Sorry, I'm distracted. <clears throat> um, which, and this, his conversion to Quakerism was a fatal, a mortal blow to his father's hopes for Penn as a, as a leader in the public realm. Um, by forsaking uh, uh, the Church of England, um, if you weren't uh, uh, either an Anglican or willing to pretend that you were an Anglican um, for public purposes, you were uh, effectively disenfranchised um, uh, the avenues of uh, educational system, public service, um, the law field were, were inaccessible to you. So, so Penn's conversion at age 22 was a deep disappointment to his father and was sort of in, uh, the, uh, a mortal blow to his father's hopes for Penn to assume a position of leadership among the elite of the country. But what's interesting, and when I sort of thought about this through the lens of, 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 of him and his world, was that at the same time that one set of leadership opportunities were closed off to him, or were apparently closed off to him, he then became, he actually entered into a social movement known as the Society of Friends, or the Quakers, 
which, in which he quickly ascended through the ranks and became a leading figure um, throughout the 1670s. <clears throat> um, now, as it turned out, he had, he, he, he had not only this leadership within the Quaker movement, um, but he also became quite close friends with King James II in the 1680s because both of them shared something in common. They were both um, alienated from the Church of England. So he became a, he, through the back door again, he achieved a certain level of prominence that his father had thought was impossible to him. So as it turned out then, um, during the 1670s and the 1680s, Penn had a sort of uh, leadership positions in both a, a, a social, a religious social movement and actually the political realm. So as it turns out, the story of his life, which I want to give us just a few of the, the highlights of as we're here this afternoon, um, shows someone who, sort of, who navigated a number of different social worlds and found a way um, to achieve extraordinary things in them. Now, as, as it turns out, as is often the case with people who have high aspirations and kind of utopian visions, um, uh, the ending was a little more difficult. Um, he had a very difficult relationship with the Pennsylvania government, because again, he was only there four years out of 37. It's extremely difficult um, in 17th century um, England to make someone who's 3,000 miles away do what you want them to do. Um, and he was, he was enormously frustrated with people he considered to be there to do his work. Um, <clears throat> so um, deep disappointment with the Pennsylvania government, um, increasing um, financial woes, as I said before, culminating in a spell in debtor's prison, um, and so on. So let me just then take us through some of the sort of highlights of this life that I that I have now spent, you know, a, a great deal of time. Um, uh, uh, studying and sort of thinking about. Um, born, October, born in October 1644, uh, near the Tower of London. This is um, <clears throat> All Hallows by the Tower. The church is still there. <clears throat> if you go into the church, anyone ever been, been there? Sometimes people have been there. Um, there's, a, there's a museum in the, cre in the crypt, in the basement, which is not quite as creepy as it sounds, but it is a, a bit dark down there. Uh, and they do have the original baptismal register there. Um, October 23rd, William Penn, right there, baptized. As I said, his father, um, uh, a naval commander on the parliamentary side in the English Civil War, spends much of the first decade of his son's life away, um, uh, participating in all sorts of really unpleasant treatment of Irish, uh, the Irish. And again, as a Murphy, this is something that's it's not a part of the story I'm particularly happy about, but it's what it is. Um, sometime in his first decade, he moves out to a place called Chigwell, about 10 miles uh, northeast of London, and goes to school there. And uh, the Chigwell School, it looks like this. It's still there. It's been in continuous operation as a school since 1629. I uh, went there and when I took these pictures. Um, kids are running all around, and it's still very much uh, a lively place. They even named one of their senior school houses, you know, like, sort of like the, the Hogwarts houses. They named one Penn, Penn's house. He's their most famous. Um, former student. <clears throat> they even have a window. I'll tell you, they have this window that they call the pen window. They think this could be the window that a young 10-year-old William Penn gazed at. There's no evidence of this. But I, would tell, they, 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 I said, don't let a, uh, the facts get in the way of a good story, right? Um, now, the important thing about Chigwell is I mentioned before about this intense religious piety that the boy had that eventually led him to, to really throw away um, all, the, all the groundwork that his father had done um, in preparing him to take his place in the, sort of the aristocracy. Um, it's at Chigwell, as he later tells the story, that this intense piety first, he has his first sort of intense spiritual experience. <clears throat> Here's how, here's how it tells the story. The first sense he had of God was when he was 11 years old at Chigwell, being retired in a chamber alone. He was so suddenly surprised with an inward comfort and, as he thought, an external glory in the room. He has many times said that from thence he had the seal of divinity and immortality, that there was a God 
and that the soul of man was capable of enjoying his divine communication. So something of great spiritual significance happened to this young boy um, at uh, age 11 <clears throat> while he was at school. Um, his time at Chigwell was to come to an abrupt end. His father, Admiral Penn, was a great favorite of, um, of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell uh, was not someone you wanted to get on the bad side of. Um, uh, Admiral Penn was placed in charge of a massive military expedition which was charged with um, capturing, conquering all of the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean, the West Indies as they called it. Um, and they took off from London, refueled and gathered new uh, supplies at Barbados and promptly uh, disaster set in. Um, it was hotter than they realized it was going to be. Um, they didn't have water. There were diseases that they hadn't anticipated. So the, the entire um, uh, expedition was a fiasco. Um, and as a result, Admiral Penn, the father, was thrown into the Tower of London. Um, and so he spends about a month there. But when he's released, he decides, I think quite wisely, um, it might be a good idea to make myself scarce. And so um, he, he took the family to Ireland, to McCroom, which is in County Cork in the southern part of Ireland, <clears throat> where the, he had lands. That this is the way the English system in Ireland worked. Some of you may know this, that um, uh, land was expropriated from the native Irish uh, and given to um, um, uh, influential English figures who then charged the Irish rent to live on their own land. As you can tell, I'm a little bit... Um, it's a little bit, still a bit of a sore topic. Um, but they lived in this castle. The only thing left of the castle is this gatehouse. Um, and you, can, uh, you can't quite see it, but it's basically ruins now. Um, spent four years here, and we know really very little, almost nothing, about what the day-to-day -day life of the boy was like. Um, we do know only one thing, and that, it, again, ties into this story about it developing um, uh, religious piety, um, deep, intense emotional spirituality. He tells a story um, about his first, this is his first encounter with Quakers. There's a traveling Quaker named Thomas Lowe who comes to, he's uh, traveling through Ireland. <clears throat> and Admiral Penn, Sir Penn, um, the father, invites him to come to the castle and have a Quaker meeting. Here's the way he tells the story later in life. While he was but a child living at Cork, which is Again, McCroom is a little town outside of Cork. With his father, Thomas Lowe, coming thither, his father proposed to hear them before they judged him and sent to Lowe to come to his house where he had a meeting, a Quaker meeting, in the family. And though he was very young, yet observed what effect Lowe's doctrine had on the hearers. So that this is, they had a family had a slave, a black of his father's, could not contain himself from weeping aloud. He, looking on his father, saw the tears running down his cheek also. He thought in himself, in his own mind, what if they should all be Quakers? This is not the point at which he becomes a Quaker, but this is his first sort of interaction with Quakers. <clears throat> Now remember, all this time, his father has other ideas for him. His father has ideas, you're going to go get a university degree, maybe study law, you're going to manage the, estate, the family estates in Ireland, and you're going to become maybe a member of parliament. And his father has it all worked, as, as parents sometimes do, uh, his father has it all worked out. Um, I struggle mightily with not doing this. Um, so he sent him to the best university, the best college in the land, Christchurch College, Oxford, it looks like this now, it looked like that then. Um, October 26th of 1660, he leaves McCroom and goes to Christ Church. This is, um, uh, the great thing about Christ Church is it sort of has that classic English college look. They filmed some of the Harry Potter movies in the, in the dining hall, so if you've seen Hogwarts in the movie, it's very much like that. Um, it's difficult to imagine a poorer match. You know, think about those of you who've had children and getting them into universities or those of you who are at universities. Talk about fit, right? The fit between the student and the place. Difficult to imagine a, a worse fit than this place for this boy. Um, this was a training ground for people who were social climbers and who were ambitious and who were willing to do pretty much whatever it took to get there. 
Um, then you have this, this boy who spent the last four years in a remote Irish town with a deeply, deeply religious bent. Um, and as it turns out, he's kicked out in two years for religious dissent. We don't know exactly what he did. He later referred to his time at Oxford as hellish darkness and debauchery. Um, I'm sure no one would ever say that about the time at the University of Richmond. Um, though they might say it about Rutgers, my other institution. Um, they're not here to hear me say that. Um, though again, we're recording, aren't we? Um, sorry. Uh, hellish darkness and debauchery, my time of persecution, caught it. Um, so we don't know exactly what he did, but it had something to do with religious dissent, religious nonconformity. Um, and then begins a sort of a five-year period that I call in the book, uh, Young Man on the Move. Um, his father, as you can probably imagine, is not terribly happy that his son has been ejected from a very prestigious university. He surely pulled all kinds of strings to get him there. Um, so his father says, I've got to get this religion out of my kid's life. This religion is really inconvenient right now. So I know what I'll do. I'll send him to France, where religion goes to die. Right? So he sends him on this grand tour. He gets, a, he gets uh, introduced to Louis XIV uh, at the court, um, ends up spending a, a year studying at the Protestant Academy uh, in France, um, comes back, decides he wants to go to law school. <clears throat> um, he arrives at law school at, at, at Lincoln's Inn, one of the very prestigious law schools in the, in the country. Um, a month later, something else arrives, the plague. So they close down the law school, and his law career really ends before it has a chance to begin. I mean, then he, he, he spends a little time doing, being a messenger between his father and the king, running messages back and forth that the war with the Dutch is about to break out. Um, but he really does seem to be a bit at loose ends. And so his father sends, decides he's going to send him back to Ireland to, to, to work with the management of the family's estates. They owned about 10,000 acres. They had a whole bunch of tenants. Each one of these tenants had to have a, a lease, and you had to do all sorts of um, legal, sort of, there are all sorts of legal ramifications of this. So he sent him back to Ireland uh, in early 1666 to try to sort of, again, give him some sort of productive work to do that could, that could lead him back into sort of the, the echelon of the elite. Um, while he's there, shortly after he arrives, there's a, there's a mutiny in the, uh, in the city of uh, the town of Carrickfergus, which is just north of Belfast. Uh, we don't know what he did, but he did something very brave. And it's about this time that this portrait, which is a little dark here, but it's on the cover of the book, um, this portrait is painted of him wearing a, a coat of armor. Um, whatever he did, it was, it was extremely impressive because the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the chief officer there, wrote to his father and suggested that his father resign one of his military posts and let his son take it over. Um, the problem was that the, the post that they had in mind paid his father 400 pounds a year. And his father was not willing to let that income go. Um, so anyhow, so he has a whole host of... Um, uh, 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 Irish responsibilities. He's mingling with the elite. He's working on getting land titles and land claims all settled. He's working on navigating uh, and negotiating leases. And then the single most important event of his life, I think, uh, safe to say, um, happens. He finishes all of his work, like I said here. Uh, he finishes all of that work in spring of 1667. And his father says, well, then I expect you home soon. And months go by, and months go by, and his son doesn't show up. The single most important event in Penn's life was his Quaker convincement, or Quaker conversion. And this happens in Cork in summer of 1667. Um, somebody asked me um, at a talk not too long ago, um, what's one thing you wish you knew about Penn that you just don't? I had very quickly answered, I wish we had a journal from the time that this happened. This was a, a, a monumental, fundamentally transformative spiritual experience that changed his life. And the only document we have that gives us any of this information comes from something he told somebody 40 years later, who then told someone else 20 years later, and then they wrote it down. So this happened in 1667. The only document we have with any of the details was written down in 1726. So I, 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 all the things you wish you knew, and there's, there's, this is one of them. But we do have this story, and it, 
Again, it harkens back to the visit of Thomas Lowe to the McCroom Castle. And Penn tells the story that he was in the city of Cork um, buying clothes. And this shopkeeper at the shop where he was buying his clothes was a Quaker woman. And he started just telling her about this visit that Lowe had made to the castle, which clearly this is now um, 10 years later, but it had made a real impression on him. And he said, um, if he knew where the person was, meaning the person who had come and preached, right? if it were 100 miles, he would go to hear him again. And then he got, I think, um, an answer he was not expecting, which is, he's here, in Cork, right now. And he's going to be speaking at the, he's going to be preaching at the Quaker meeting tomorrow. So this is, again, I, there's no evidence that he, that he knew this was going to happen. Um, he went to the Quaker meeting, and he said, as soon as Lowe began to preach, he had this sort of overwhelming spiritual experience. He was exceedingly reached so that he wept much. This was a, a sort of a, a, a transformational moment in his life. Um, now, at this point, then he begins to attend Quaker meetings. Um, he hasn't quite got it all down yet. You might know that the Quakers have a peace testimony and they're pacifists. Um, story is told of uh, a soldier coming in to break up the Quaker meeting. It was, um, it was extremely illegal to be a, to be a Quaker in, in Ireland or England at this point. Um, Penn tells the story that when the soldiers came in to break up the meeting, he grabbed one of them and was going to throw him down the stairs. Um, again, because this is a time when he, at least in the recent past, he was doing combat and wearing armor. Um, but then one of the friends apparently inter interceded and reminded him of the peace testimony. But what's really important about this interaction of throwing or not throwing the man down the stairs was that since he didn't throw him down the stairs, the soldier went, was able to go and get reinforcements and come back and arrest them all. So here we have now the first public um, uh, confession that Penn makes. And he, he's brought with 18 other Quakers before the magistrates in the city of Cork. And as you might expect, because his father is so famous and because he's been there and they're a famous family, the magistrate, the judge, says to him, I know you. You're no Quaker. They're scum, right? They're going to jail. I know you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go. And at this point, he rejects the, the offer. Sort of, he's being thrown a lifeline, right? He told the magistrate whether he thought him so or not, he was one. He was a Quaker. And if he sent his friends to prison, he was willing to go with them. This is the first public confession of Quakerism. Obviously, it results in him being sent to jail. But it results in something else even more problematic, because the judge was a friend of his father. And so you can see what's coming next. He says, well, OK, then you're all going to jail. And by the way, I'm going to write to your father and tell him what happened. So, cat's out of the bag. Um, he's summoned home, and he is uh, summarily um, uh, uh, kicked out of the family home. Um, but what's, what's so important, I think, about speaking, again, thinking about the, the, the roles he played, the leadership roles, the, 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 the way in which he sort of went through the world, the, the exit or the ejection or the expulsion from his father's home, from his family home, was at the same time his pen's entry into the public life of a Quaker agitator, controversialist, preacher, uh, however you want to put it. So much so that by the end of the, the next year, he himself has been thrown in the Tower of London on a blasphemy charge. Um, and so this, uh, there's this sort of this moment in his life where all of his father's hopes for him have been dashed. He's been ejected from the family home. And yet he he's sort of lands in this supportive community of London Quakers. He meets his first wife in that community. And they become a kind of surrogate family for him. They are also, at the same time, a subversive political movement, um, an intense religious community, um, and so on. He, he meets all kinds of um, interesting folks, which I don't have time to tell you about. Um, finally, he gets, set out of, gets let out of the Tower of London, and his father decides, i got to get him out of here. I'm going to send him back to Ireland. Um, he's already been in jail once in England, once in Ireland. And he sends him there. And, and while he's there, he's doing much of what he was before. He's negotiating with tenants, um, negotiating terms of leases, and so on. 
meeting with people. But he's got this dual sort of identity. Um, on the one hand, he is a member of a persecuted sect. He's a leading member of a persecuted sect. As I said a minute ago, it is illegal to meet in an unauthorized religious gathering. So every single time a Quaker meeting happens, those individuals involved are subject to um, whipping, seizure of goods, fines, imprisonments, and all sorts of other penalties. So that's one side of his existence. There's also the other side. He is a pen. Everyone knows his name. Everyone knows who his father is. And he is at the same time as he is a marginalized religious figure, he is a member of a colonizing elite, which, as, a, as I said several times, I think, expropriated Irish land. Um, OK? Um, and so he, this is where he gets, writes one of his first uh, and most enduring works justifying uh, religious liberty as well. All right, so what happens next is um, sort of the, the next, for the next two decades, William Penn becomes one of the most famous people in England, certainly one of the most famous religious dissenters in England. It begins with a famous trial. Um, uh, which I highly recommend you read. It's, it's, it's freely available online. There's a, a transcript of it. It's not really a transcript. It's a sort of a morality tale. Um, uh, but a ju uh, the jury refuses to convict Penn and his co-defendant um, on charges of disturbing the peace. They were out in the, preaching in the street. They were brought before um, the judge. The jury six times refused to convict them. Um, and this is not only becomes important in the history of jury independence and the history of law in England and America, but it also made him a celebrity. Right? He's the guy, and the jury became celebrities um, as well. And so what that, what that leads to then over the next 15 or 20 years is um, an increasingly high profile. He is someone who is um, called on by Quakers to advocate or agitate against their critics. Um, because he has, a, he has a, a lively prose style, he's a good writer, he's got a smattering of education, he's got a famous name, he is a famously, he apparently was quite a charismatic preacher, um, and he also has resources. Um, after his father died, they had, they had um, had a rapprochement, and so he did in, uh, inherit from his father, so he's able to fund his travels around and his publications. I mean, he becomes an increasingly visible figure within the Society of Friends, the Quakers, um, loyal lieutenant to George Fox, the founder of Quakerism, and he becomes, again, a figure um, who's often called upon to present petitions or to lobby to Parliament or the King against persecution, not simply uh, regarding Quakers, but regarding religious dissenters of, of many types. Um, again, because he is a famous individual from a famous family, um, and he has a certain profile. So he becomes uh, extremely um, uh, uh, well-known as a public figure. Uh, and what he does, but all that being said, most of his petitions, his lobbying, his uh, agitation against persecution, it's all pretty much unsuccessful. Persecution is the, is the sort of order of the day. And so by the end of the 1670s, he starts thinking about some other way that we might, some other possibility. Um, so he's thinking about some other possibility. Right? And this is where the idea of a colony in America begins to percolate. Um, and what he does is he, he builds on and draws on his, personal, his father's personal relationships with the crown, the government, Apparently, they had lent, his father had lent the king a bunch of money, and the king hadn't paid it back. The king doesn't have to pay back the money if he doesn't want to. Um, but Penn parlayed or leveraged this debt into a grant of several million acres in America, which is called Pennsylvania. And as he insisted, was not named after him, because that would be vanity. And Quakers don't do vanity. He insisted that the king named it after his father. But they had the same name, 
Right. So it's, again, you can, it's, again, it's a great story. So why, I'm not going to tell you it isn't true. Um, and so he actually goes to Pennsylvania, spends the first two years there. Um, he writes the Constitution, and this again is where he's, he's, he's been a lot, he's, been, he's on both the sort of the religious side of, of leadership and the Quaker movement. Now he's becoming the, head, the chief of state of a, of a political community. He's been calling for religious toleration for the last 10 years. Now he gets the chance to actually try to implement it. Um, what he finds is that it's much more difficult to implement than it is to theorize. Um, spends the first two years um, over there um, uh, by his own sort of personal charisma. At this point, as I mentioned earlier, he's 37 years old. To me, this is just to me, this is very young. Depending on where, where you are in your journey of life, this may seem very old to you uh, or maybe very young. Um, but he's, he's over there for two years. There are border disputes, so he has to come back. So he has to come back. And he says to them, I've got to go, and um, they're having legal disputes. The, the Mason-Dixon line is basically uh, in dispute from 1681 all the way up to whenever it was done, what, 1789. Um, disputes with Maryland over the border and Delaware and things that you don't need to worry about the details of. Um, but he ends and he, he goes over there and his plan is to, 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 to make the legal arguments and come right back. But as it turns out, his old friend James becomes king. And Penn and James have several things in common. I mentioned this very briefly earlier. First of all, they are both religious, uh, marginalized, members of marginalized religious groups. Penn is a Quaker, James is a Catholic. Um, secondly, James and Penn's father served in the Navy together, and they were close friends. Um, and, and third, they both have what you might look, think of as like the zeal of a convert. They were converted to their specific religion. So they had a deep and pious commitment. James also has a deep desire to bring religious freedom to England for everyone, not just Protestants, but including his fellow Catholics. And he says to Penn, I need you here. I need you here to help me with this political campaign. And so he says, OK, I'll stay. He ends up being gone from Pennsylvania for 15 years, in which time things happen and things are going on. They're, ha they're perfectly happy to have him out of the picture. Um, so if you know your um, uh, English history, you'll know what happened to James II. Um, let's just say it was not a glorious revolution for William Penn. It wasn't for James either, but he got to escape and go to France and, and got paid by Louis XIV and he got to live in a castle. Um, Penn spends a, a, a number of years. It's a, it's a, it, he goes from being one of the most trusted advisors of the king in December 1688 to three weeks later being a fugitive under surveillance brought in for questioning, accused of treason, and imprisoned several times over the next few years. Um, finally, in 1691, he goes into hiding. And then in the, in the crowning insult, again, speaking as someone who was born and raised in Pennsylvania, sorry if there are any New Yorkers in the crowd, um, uh, they take his colony away from him, and they assign it to the, to the governor of New York. Which to me, this is the, this is the, the, the indignity of being ruled by New Yorkers. Um, but there it is. Um, so his wife dies. This is a, this is a deep, um, uh, it's, a, it's a low point. It's an extended low point. Um, he uh, eventually gets himself cleared of the charges. Eventually, he uh, uh, gets control of Pennsylvania back. Um, and he begins to reemerge as a public figure. Um, he writes a book um, 325 years ago um, proposing a European parliament. I think is a really remarkable thing. It, it, in case you don't know, it didn't happen at the time that he wrote it. Um, uh, but he does, um, he, he brings uh, together the Quaker concern for peace with the sort of near constant state of war that had existed um, in, across Europe during his lifetime and has the idea that if we could just get a kind of parliament of European states, that would provide us with a way forward. Um, and in fact, I was um, invited to a conference earlier um, in the fall, and it turns out, I did not know this, um, but there are a whole, there's a whole um, uh, uh, group of EU folks in Rome who consider William Penn to be the founding 
member of the EU. Um, I guess depending on what you think about the EU, that might be a good thing um, or not. But he gradually reemerges. He gets back to Ireland once. He gets back to America once. He never regains the kind of status that he had um, during that time when he was when he was close advisor um, to the king. Um, so he gets back to Pennsylvania just one more time for two years, and then he comes back to England. So as I say, he's only there four years. Um, he's alienated from the Pennsylvanians. He's alienated from the government, most of whom are his fellow Quakers. He's insistent that they're cheating him out of money, that they're disobeying his commands, and there's not a thing you can do about it, and he's right in some, in some ways. Um, as it turns out, his financial situation only gets worse and worse. He spends uh, the first eight months of 1708 in debtor's prison. Um, he, uh, uh, in 1712, he's hit with a very serious stroke, and he becomes really disabled for the last six years of his life. What's interesting there um, is that his second wife, Hannah, Hannah Penn, um, effectively serves as the governor of Pennsylvania, from England, from a distance. Um, and there has recently been a, a portrait of Hannah Penn um, put up in the State House of Pennsylvania as the first female governor of Pennsylvania. Um, and, then he, and then he, there was some, there was some dispute between different governor, governor's administrations about whether the, whether the painting would go in one place or another, but um, I don't know how that all worked out. Um, so let me just wrap things up and leave us some time for some questions by suggesting four um, paradoxes that, that I think bring home the complexity of a person like Penn. Um, we'll go through them one at a time. First of all, we'll talk about Quaker equality and social hierarchy. From the moment he became a Quaker at 1667, age 22, Penn um, subscribed to the fundamental principle of Quakerism, which is that there is something of God in each person, male and female, what they call the inner light, or some of you may know Quakers, some of you may be Quakers. Um, this is a radically egalitarian theory that proclaims human equality in the face of God. And this led Quakers to engage in all sorts of disruptive behavior. They would refuse to take their hat off as they're supposed to for their, their superiors. They would refuse, they would refuse to use um, formal address, formal uh, speech of various kinds. They had simple dress and so on. Um, this was a bedrock principled commitment that he held for his entire life as a Quaker. That said, this is his father, you can't really see it. He, he was born and raised in a particular social context. He was always surrounded with servants. He owned several slaves on, his, uh, on Pensbury Manor, his American um, uh, estate. The story of abolitionism in, in the United States, the Quakers are a major part of that, but that's 18th and 19th century Quakers. Penn's a 17th century Quaker. Um, and so there is this, and, and as I said, his, his financial problems were not entirely self-inflicted, but they were, he, he, he was not good at cutting costs. Um, so there was this constant sort of struggle within him um, between these egalitarian principles and the kind of deference and hierarchy that he was raised to expect. I mean, he threw off his father's religion, but there were certain things, of course, that, that you don't throw off. Um, so that's one. Um, secondly, Penn became a celebrated public figure, as I mentioned a few minutes ago with this, uh, this trial the, where the jury refused to convict him. He became a celebrated public figure as a champion of what we might call representative popular institutions, parliament, juries, judges and so, and so on. Uh, institutions that, at least in theory, are there to ensure that people have an avenue to push back against would-be tyrants. The, um, the wonderful thing about the trial transcript I was telling you about is that the judge says to the jury, okay, you've heard the testimony, now go convict him. And this is the way it was. This is, again, this is sort of 17th century justice system. You've heard what he did, go convict him. And the jury refuses to do it. So this kind of, this kind of, it's kind of a democratic populist institution. The idea of having people, uh, judge, people from your own community judge whether you're guilty or innocent, not having one person who's appointed by the king. That said, 
the darkest low point of his life came because he was, uh, became close advisor to a king who many people thought, perhaps rightly, was himself a would-be tyrant. The, 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 the mistrust uh, of James II, which led to the 1688 revolution, was deep. It was heavily flavored with anti-Catholicism as well. Um, so there's this, and there's this, this sort of constant back and forth um, in Penn's own thought. All right, third, this one um, gets to the American plate. Here's, here's a letter that Penn wrote shortly after he arrived in Pennsylvania the first time. I am mightily taken with this part of the world. I like it so well that my family being once fixed with me, I am like to be an adopted American. I love that phrase, adopted American. I even had convinced, I thought I had convinced the press to name the book an adopted American. You might notice that it's not. Um, I got an email one day, we were, we were, things were moving right along, that's the name on the contract that I signed. And then I got an email that the marketing meeting had happened. And the marketing people said, well, what about the UK market? What are they going to say about an adopted American as the type? Because I never thought of this. And you never win when you argue with the marketing people. So it's like, OK, William, I want I really. So he, he, as far as we can tell, he fully expected to spend his life there, or at least the, most of it. This great map of Philadelphia, some of you may have seen. Um, this is where City Hall in Philadelphia is right now. The 1683 map, that's Rittenhouse Square, that's Washington Square, Logan Square, um, Franklin Square up there. So these, he, this was done in London, um, but, he, but he, um, he imagined himself as a kind of American. He intended, he, had, he claims he had almost convinced his wife to join him. Um, and yet that said, um, here's where he rests. He rests at Jordan's meeting house just outside London. Um, he spent the last 18 years of his life um, far from Pennsylvania. He's buried here with his wives. Um, uh, this grave signifies five of his children. Um, also back here, interesting side note, and then I promise I'm almost done. Um, Thomas Elwood and his wife are buried here. Elwood is the guy who wrote down um, Paradise Lost as Milton read it. Yeah, they were very close friends, Elwood and, and, and Penn. So this notion that I'm adopted American, and yet he's a stranger to the place. Um, and then lastly, Again, to get back to something I said before, this is, this is the debtor's prison, um, the fleet prison in London. There's a guy looking, you can't quite see it, there's a guy looking through the bars saying, uh, pray remember the poor debtors. Um, so Pennsylvania, generally, and Philadelphia specifically, quickly became a thriving um, intellectual, economic, political, social hub on the east coast um, uh, of North America. Um, uh, Meanwhile, Penn was back in debtor's prison. I tell my students, there's a reason. I think there's a reason why a young, ambitious, um, uh, social climbing um, uh, uh, individual like Ben Franklin, like a young Ben Franklin, A, wants to get the heck out of Boston, and B, finds himself a congenial home in Philadelphia. He arrives in Philadelphia five years after Penn dies, and he hadn't been there, they never crossed paths, but he has famously um, uh, contentious relations with Penn's sons. But there was something about Penn's vision of a religiously pluralistic society in which people who were willing to sort of put their shoulder to the common work would be welcomed. He referred to wanting um, sober people of all sorts, sober and industrious people. Um, there's something about um, uh, Franklin's notion of self-interested virtue, um, commercial life, and so on, that really, I think, speaks to um, what Penn had in mind. Um, and you can easily see, but Franklin tells a great story in his autobiography about how every time someone came with a collection for building a church, no matter who it was, he would give to them, which A, means he believes in a certain kind of pluralistic society, and B, he also realized it was good for business. Um, but, so there's a, there's a series of paradoxes then that, that sort of, I think, bring out the complexity of this individual. Um, and so I think I'll stop there and ask if there are questions or comments or anything anybody wants to talk about. Because oh. if I don't stop there, I'll talk all evening, and that won't be good. Questions?
Yes, sir. Okay, yes, the question is about Penn's um, view to the Native Americans. Um, uh, there's a famous, I'm trying to think of what the word to use. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strong founding story among Pennsylvanians um, that Penn was uh, famously well inclined toward the natives. Um, which is, it's not a false story. Um, certainly, the, the, if you were a, one of the native, member of the native tribes, um, you had a much, much uh, happier existence um, in Pennsylvania than you would have had up in, in Boston. Um, uh, and so there are famous, there are famous uh, paintings, you may have seen them, of Penn under the, under the treaty elm at Shechemaxon. It's not clear that that ever happened, um, but it's a great painting. Um, now, Penn had a couple, I'll say a couple things about this. Um, first of all, he wrote a letter to one of the native chiefs before he went to America. Um, and it's really quite moving. You can, it's probably online somewhere. And he talks about how we all worship uh, a god and, um, and I want to come in friendship and I'm not like those other people um, and all of that. Um, and it's true that there was not, during Penn's time, um, the kind of wholesale slaughter um, and, and, and carnage that you often saw in Virginia, for example, early, in the early years, and in Massachusetts. Um, and he, he paid for, he purchased land. Um, that being said, it was never really a, a question that he was going to take this land, right? Charles II didn't ask the natives, is it okay if I give this land to Penn? And Penn began selling the land long before he had actually even been here. So um, it, was a, it was a similar kind of end result. Those tribes were sort of gradually moved west. Um, so I don't want to say that it's, it's, it's the same old thing, because it's not the same old thing. Um, but, there's, um, but there is that strong myth that you sort of, that you, that you sort of reference. Um, does that make sense? I don't, I don't want to say either. I don't want to, it, it's, it's, it's not you know, good guys and bad guys. It's, it's, a, it's a complicated process. Uh, and I think it's, it's the case both that some of the more euphoric stories about Penn's you know, gentle dealings may be overstated. But that being said, it was quite a different story than you had in some other places. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, well, he, the question about Ben Franklin. Um, Penn himself left Pennsylvania for the last time in 1701. Uh, Franklin, I believe, comes to Pennsylvania in 1723 after Penn died. But, 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 but what Franklin does have um, is famously difficult relationships with Penn's sons, who were at that point the proprietors of Pennsylvania. Thomas and uh, John. I get the sons mixed up. I, I think it was Thomas and John. Um, and, and they were in England for much of the time, but did come over a little bit. Their main concern, and this is, you can sort of understand this, their main concern is that they didn't want to be taxed. <laughs> they didn't want any of their lands to be taxed. Of course, they owned, they owned tens of thousands of acres, and so um, the government was trying to tax them. Um, and so he had an, a, a number of really difficult meetings with them in London, um, and then... Uh, uh, Again, the, the dates are a little bit fuzzy um, on a Friday afternoon. Um, but, they, but yeah, so it was with his sons that Franklin uh, tangled. Um, and Franklin really was a, um, a strong assertor of the rights of the government to order things in Pennsylvania as they saw fit. After all, they were the ones who were there all the time. They were the ones who were living there. These pens, in their view, was, were just over in, over in England wanting to have their money sent to them. Yes? Uh, in the work that you've done, which is extensive, and I used to live in Pennsylvania, and I lived in Philadelphia, ah. it's all extraordinarily interesting to me. In anywhere in the things that you were studying, was there any notion that, that Pennsylvania and the other colonies were eventually going to leave England? Zero. Yeah. I, again, Penn dies in 1718, and so you, know, you, you sort of do the math. I, I've never seen anything. I mean, he, in his view, colonies were to benefit the, the mother country. There's a whole economic system built around that. Um, uh, it's not, it, to me, he is an, sort of his center of gravity is England. Um, what he really, what he wanted was for people who knew something about America 
to be the ones running the colonial offices in London. That was what there's one great you know, beef with the administration in London was these are just bureaucratic hacks. They don't know, we said, he says, we, need, they, we have too many people with what he called un-American understandings. Right? So we don't know, they don't know anything about the place and yet they're making decisions here about it. So, um, but as a separate political entity, no. But what, now the one thing you, pe people will, will point out um, is that at, it, at one point in a piece of private correspondence, Penn referred to Pennsylvania as, um, he said, I hope God will make it uh, the seed of a nation, right? But that doesn't mean a separate political unit totally, you know, so it's clearly there was all, there were a lot of utopian aspirations sort of loaded onto the colonies by folks in England. Um, but I'm not aware of anything that would suggest and in fact, for most Americans, I think really up until, depending on which historian you go with, um, up until 10 years before the revolution, it was sort of unthinkable to most people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Yes. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. They were not well received, were they? No. <laughs> yeah. What can you tell us about the two wives? Sure. There were two wives. Um, they, were, uh, they were each, uh, they, the marriages were 22 years uh, each, as, as it worked out. Um, his, young, his first wife, Guillelma Springett, um, uh, was roughly his age. They were in their mid-20s when they met. She was the, um, the stepdaughter of, of Isaac Pennington, who was a famous Quaker. Um, Pennington married his, uh, uh, Guillermo's uh, mother, who was widowed, um, uh, and they were, they were sort of Quaker royalty, and that royalty is not the right word for Quakers, obviously, but um, they were well-known, well-connected Quakers, and, and it seems to have, again, speaking of the things I wish I knew more about, uh, in that account of his Quaker conversion, his convincement, um, he tells a story that when his father kicked him out of his house, he then went off and did some preaching somewhere, and then he was, his father summoned him back home, and he said, as I was going um, to my father to sort of get my punishment, um, I stopped for a, to a meeting to sort of bolster my courage. And I went upstairs, and there I met Guli Springett, who became my wife. That's all it says. So I think, you know, was it love at first sight? Did his heart go pitter-patter? You know, all these things you wish you knew. Um, but he did, he wrote very touching letters to his wife and his children as he prepared to sail in 1682. Um, she was never particularly healthy. Many, most of her children died, um, and she never went to America, and she died in 1694. Um, he, uh, he remarried a little too quickly for some of his friend's um, tastes, um, and his new wife was uh, about half his age, Hannah Penn. She was the, um, the daughter of a very prosperous Bristol merchant family, the Callow Hills. There's a Callow Hill Street in Philadelphia, uh, named after her. Um, she was, um, uh, she did come to America for the second uh, visit. She gave birth to, to John, uh, the son John, on American soil. They call him John the American. Um, and she, um, after his disability, after his strokes uh, for the last six years of his life, she took over not only nursing him, but managing the affairs of the, of the place. Um, and she's, yeah, she's really, she's really quite something. But we know very little about the first wife. There's, 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 there's not even really, there's one painting, uh, a print that's in the book that we think might be her, but we know very little about her. Yes? <laughs> well, here's the thing. When, when you're 3,000 miles away in 1690 and you say, you write, you owe me, you know, 1,000 pounds like you promised. And you, you seal that up in an envelope. And then it takes 6 to 8 to 12 weeks for it to even get across the ocean, right? So, um, and, and uh, he, he, was, he was perpetually uh, angry at the Pennsylvanians because they didn't tell him what was happening. He wrote at one point, I don't even know what the laws are. I don't even know who's in charge. Um, and so, so it's, it's, it has, I think, a lot to do with his, with his absences. So he was really unable to sort of put the muscle on people, right? Uh, and again, if you're a pacifist, 
it makes it, it complicates things too, right? There's a whole series of things you can't do to people. Um, but yeah, so it was a combination of, of, the, of the distance of the place um, and also I think his own inability or unwillingness to trim his expenses. He, up until 1707, which is just a year before he went in debtor's prison, he had um, a very large house with servants and all of that. So you, like, you, you can look at it from our perspective, like, you know, duh, it's math, right? Just put two and two together. But he had a certain notion of what it meant to live a, an upright life, and that required certain things to be in place. And he had a bad habit of selling land that he had been renting to pay off his debts. So you get the money, right, and you pay off the, but then you aren't getting the rent that you got. So it's sort of, yeah, what's well, a complicated answer to a very good question. Thank you. Oh, are you giving me the, the signal? All right, well, I'll be out here if you, yeah, oh. Great. Just a quick word of thanks uh, again for Andrew's address. Um, not only are you tr tremendously knowledgeable about Penn, but your energy and enthusiasm are, are, deeply, uh, are deeply welcome here today. And um, uh, you've accomplished what you set out to do, which is to take somebody you know a little bit about um, and, and learn a lot more. And if you want to learn more, the, this book is for sale outside, and I'm sure you can get a signed copy just like I got. I want to just briefly say thank you, of course, to um, the Thomas W. Smith Foundation for sponsoring uh, the talks and, and a lot of the work that we do at the, at the Marshall Center. But especially today, I want to thank um, uh, Dean Peart and the Jepson School for uh, really hosting this talk and the reception to follow. For those of you who have never been to a reception that's uh, hosted by the Jepson School, you're in for a real treat um, because they never disappoint. Uh, so today's reception will be a little bit more abundant than usual, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Peart for that as well. I don't get to see you. Please have a happy holiday, but please join us for a reception. Thank you.